Hi everybody, Taylor, Editor-in-Chief here at Journey to the Fringe. Due to a continuity issue, I did need to make some adjustments to this episode, but thanks to the power of editing, you will barely notice. Thank you and enjoy the episode. I did come across something recently. It was about four weeks, a month ago now. It was all over the news in San Diego, among other places. It happened in San Diego. There has been a mystery boom recorded again. All over the news in San Diego. So they're popping back up again. There was earth-shaking booms. And geological surveys said that they are not earthquakes. There is no seismic activity reported. Obviously, those mystery booms have been popping up all over the world. But just recently, about four weeks ago, it was coming out of San Diego. So I was looking for some news articles on this. And I found some interesting things, just recent reportings, actually, about these booms. In the same article, it has about San Diego reporting loud booms. It's pretty creepy, actually. It goes on to say in Lakewood, Colorado, there's bizarre shrieking sounds described as shrieking? by locals. Shrieking, sorry, not squeaking. Oh, okay. Like a train on a sharp curve, maybe feedback oh. from a radio, trumpets or whales, which yeah. is one of the standard sounds, I think, that yeah. goes with the mystery booms. Yeah. And then and there's another one from Bratislava that de- described it as Darth Vader breathing, which is super creepy, actually. That is. I first heard it on Linda Moulton House covering the new mystery boom yeah, coming out of San Diego. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's been all about the wild sounds in the sky and they are heard in many places. A lot of them can be explained by weather phenomenons that carry sound further than they normally would. It can be freaky sounds, but if there's a rail yard that's slightly further than you'd regularly hear it and now some sort of weather phenomenon allows it to mm. uh, sound to carry better, yeah. that can occur. There's also, it would be an interesting one just to do a topic on eventually. Oh yeah, I would love to do that. There are some very interesting and they pop up in very specific places and it can be only specific people hear it and only specific people in that region also suffer adverse effects. Yeah, it's it can be super like one person in a neighborhood will hear it and their neighbors won't hear anything. Oh, yeah, just a cool uh, thing that came out of there to talk about just on the top of this one. Yeah, and it's always... I I haven't heard about that in a while, so it's good to be a reminder of all the topics we need to hit. But with that, how about we get on to the episode? From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on our journey to the fringe. We're not quite moving on on this episode. We're on episode 13. Can you believe it? 13 episodes. I can't. And we're doing some, I know. <laughs> and that's it. This is our last episode. <laughs> 13th. Then covered it all. <laughs> A lot of Bigfoot and some UFOs, and that's yeah. it. <laughs> we're out of ideas. Oh, man. We're really going out on a high note, then. Hey. <laughs> yeah. We're going to go out on the peak of our careers, podcasting yeah. journeys. So take this... the fame. Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so this one is going to be just some mundane cryptids that we found that we thought after the episode that we did on the last one, which I hope you liked. That was one of my favorites so far. It gave me the creeps. 
we just thought we'd cover some more mundane cryptids and then we're going to move on to something completely new next week. And just so that we're all clear, each cryptid is unique and special in its own way. Mm-hmm. It is just Bigfoot Beautiful. and wild Looking men in nuts. general are so charismatic and spotlight mm-hmm. stealing that we sometimes forget the lesser known of the cryptids. And they need love too. So we need to cover and a we few did more. Too. So I don't blame any of you for neglecting these sweet cryptid childs of ours. Yeah, we're going to move on, cover a few more, and then we're going to move on to another topic. We'll probably be back to cryptids in the future. We will be back to cryptids. Sorry, we we won't because this is the last episode. Yeah. It's too bad. I want to talk more about cryptids. (laughs) Okay, so this one I did... I was torn on this episode on what to do. I had a few that I could pick from. Do I do a dinosaur, which brought up some really interesting things within myself, within my soul. Because who doesn't like to hear about dinosaurs? It also got me Googling, do dinosaurs have ghosts? So there's just a topic we can cover in the future as well. I hope not. We've been using their corpses in that ways they wouldn't want us to we probably have some really bad karma actually i should have just started the episode off with that one actually do dinosaurs have ghosts (laughs) because that could lead to some interesting topics do i do a dinosaur i wanted to thunderbird or some more sasquatch just kidding we just did sasquatch for like 10 episodes (laughs) So I decided to go with the most terrifying sounding one of them all, which is the Mongolian death worm. Ooh, because he's one literally, of my uh, favorites. It literally has death in its name, which I also think is an attractive feature of the Mongolian death worm. And it's also they, probably the metalist animal that you'll ever hear about. It is. It plays metal when it comes. That's how you know it's coming. Obviously, I'm joking. So these guys quite literally remind me of tremors. Or sandworms and Beetlejuice, and from the novel Dunes. Yeah. So they definitely I, all of those were inspired by this creature. I couldn't find that they actually were. I looked into it. Dunes might have been. Dunes kind of showed a little bit of that, but the other ones didn't really mention Mongolian deathworms at all. No, um, but even then, if. If any of them are inspired then by Dune, which is a very fundamental science fiction novel, then yeah. now they are also inspired by the Mongolian death war. Okay. There's also a horror movie of the namesake, the Mongolian death worm. However, I would say it's only very loosely based on the actual lives of a Mongolian death worm. The Mongolian death worm, or I was going to Google how to say this, so I'm not going to say this properly at all. Olgoi Korkoi, for short, in Mongolian, which translates to intestine worm. So it it literally does not translate to Mongolian death worm. It is, the Western world has given it the name Mongolian death worm, and it's not the Mongolian, don't refer it to as the Mongolian death worm. No, they tend to speak less English. Yeah, they, they literally call it intestine worm. So we added some pizzazz to the name, which I prefer Mongolian death worm anyway, and that's why I picked the Mongolian death worm. The death worm got its Mongolian name for looking like an intestine due to its red blood-like color, as well as being just described as being two to seven feet in length and spitting out a yellow corrosive saliva as well as generating blasts of electricity onto its prey from not touching it so it like the uh, 
I, I we know it's in Mongolia, but do you know the region that it tends to be found in? The Gobi Mongolia Desert. is a pretty big. Okay, it is. I don't think the actual intestines spit out yellow corrosive saliva or generate blasts of electricity, to my knowledge. But I'm not a doctor. So I don't know if intestines do that or not. Generally, uh, intestines staying confined to a body. Yeah. So there may be electricity in there. I'm not sure. Yeah. And... They rely on teamwork nonetheless. And they'll <laughs> they'll allow other parts of the body to do their biddings like that. Yeah. So they have no limbs. They are sausage shaped. And it is said that it would murder camels and lay its eggs in their intestines. That was um, the other possible way that it got its name, is that it starts growing in the intestines of an animal. Yes. From what I can tell, though, it's strictly because it looks like an intestine. That's not what and I yeah, would And yeah, it's got the it color, for. too. Not that I've really seen intestines up close. Anyhow, it so obviously it hails from Mongolia. It's right in the name. Mostly, if not entirely, in the remote Gobi Desert that we just said. Not that Mongolia isn't remote to begin with, and its habitat is the underground of the desert. So for reference, the Gobi Desert is a vast region that spans a territory of 500,000 square miles of rough terrain, and it's mostly said to be active during the wet months, June and July, and hibernating the rest of the year. So it comes out when we generally see worms out of the ground as well when it's wet livestock that doesn't happen too much in a desert no it doesn't so you're not bound to come across them too often if you're just trying to cross the desert no i mean you could just stay in when it rains if you really really wanted to stay away from them which apparently they do livestock and humans are its prey of choice and it sucks to be them living in one of the most sparsely populated areas of the world so i'm not sure how much they actually get to eat in june and july especially when it's raining and they know when it comes out that's just me making some observations the belief is that the death worm covers its prey with an acidic substance is there not a horror movie about something that does this i racked my brain and i vaguely remember some sort of monster somewhere covering its prey in some sort of substance like that i'm pretty sure it's the monster in Ernest scared stupid (laughs) i don't think so because that would be a little too hardcore for a like g-rated kids movie Um, i'm pretty sure it did though the the xenomorph i'd have to not intentionally but it's blood's acidic so there's definitely a lot of people who are killed just by being burned to death by the uh, xenomorph's blood it seems like a proper like defense mechanism anyhow as the creature begins to attack The top half of its body raises out of the sand, and then it starts to inflate until it explodes, releasing a lethal poison on its prey. And the explosion here seems counterproductive, but again, I'm not a doctor. And it sounds like it kills itself. (laughs) Yeah, it most definitely sounds like that. There is no mention of it regenerating or anything after that, (laughs) or if it's just a spare body part. It just raises out and explodes, and continues on i think because then it goes on to poison that it explodes out kills the prey instantly which if that's the case doesn't seem like a bad way to die also so i might just update that as the number one best way to die as who wouldn't want to be killed instantly instead of you know suffering but that's gonna raise a lot of questions maybe we can actually (laughs) get this creature found chelsea's body found scorched to death in the Kobe desert <laughs> covered in acid marks cause of death natural yes 
And I'm saying it here on this podcast, it wasn't natural. <laughs> and then depending on your source, it may also have spikes coming from both ends of its body. Spikes pointing inward or outward again, depending on who you're talking to. Oh, some say none, some say some, some say both, some say in, some say out. <laughs> so <laughs> There's spikes, we don't know which way, but they're going. <laughs> oh boy, are they going. But there might not be spikes, so we don't know. The Mongolian Prime Minister, Sam Din Bezar, in 1922, described the worm. He said, it is shaped like a sausage about two feet long, has no head nor leg, and it is so poisonous that merely the touch means instant death. It lives in the most desolate parts of the Gobi Desert. He said this to Roy Chapman Andrews in the book On the Trail of Ancient Men. Investigators were able to start heading over to Mongolia around the 90s as it was restricted before due to the relationship Mongolia had with Russia. And obviously investigators have come up empty-handed in any investigations that they've had because it's encrypted and they can't just come up full-handed. Ivan Mackerel, a Loch Ness monster investigator, he really likes the Mongolian deathworm. He ventured on over to Mongolia to see what was up. He came to the conclusion that it was probably real. After interviewing many locals and officials, even they all firmly believe in the existence of the creature, and there are so many sightings and deaths attributed to the worm that this was the only conclusion one could draw. Not only that, but it's so vast. If there's going to be any place on Earth where something can exist without being found, the Gobi Desert is probably it. Or Australia, just because they have so much like weird <laughs> stuff going on over today. there. Yeah. I honestly, <laughs> really, why haven't episode. they taken that stance with Australia of, yeah, probably when somebody says they saw something there? I just don't haven't get they? It. I'm no. pretty sure that is their stance. <laughs> The Mongolian death worm, also called the Mongolian thunderworm, which is equally as hardcore to say. A lot of the problems that we'll see with what people say these things can't exist. First off, people will say that this isn't in the fossil record. So really, where is it coming from? But with worms, surprise, surprise, they don't have bones. And we actually don't really have fossils of any worms. Yeah. The best they have is trace fossils, which are basically they find like little burrows on rocks saying like, OK, mm -hmm. worms were around at this part. OK. Also, that to find that for a Mongolian death worm, they would have to do a fairly intensive dig in a very hard part of the world to get to and find trace elements. And also be wary that there is a chance that while you're digging, you're going to come across something that will explode and throw poison at you that kills instantly. Yeah. I mean, what if it is real? Yeah. As I said, being killed instantly wouldn't be the and worst thing. The second <laughs> the part world. is, is that this is a very remote part of the world. So it's not that crazy to think that something that lives underneath the ground hasn't been found by us. We don't go there. We don't look for things there all that often. And no. again, it shoots poison. I don't think yeah. you want to be near this and very likely can shoot electricity too, if it exists. Yeah, I don't know that anything really well, the only thing that actually has any electricity associated to it is eels. Yeah. And it's a water animal. Yeah. Not a land animal. I mean, uh, there are certain types of eels that can go on land, but I don't know if the electric eel can. Ugh, that's freaky. So funny story. So I was just talking about 
Ivan Mackerel, who was the Loch Ness monster investigator who took a liking to the Mongolian deathworm and went in there. He went there three separate times, actually, in search of the Mongolian deathworm. And I really thought this was a funny story about him. So he was inspired by the novel Dune that we were talking about. And he try he was inspired by this novel and he tried to lure lure out the death worm during an investigation using vibrations being that of speakers on the desert floor so i thought that was a funny thing that he tried to do he's like yeah why not i've seen i'm sorry i'm gonna share my screen really quick with you i saw this video oh it's about a week or two ago and it really reminds me of what you're talking about here. It's called Worm Charming. Hmm. Didn't they do that on Tremors too? I can't remember. It's been a long time since I saw Tremors. I thought it was me. So this is this is how they're gathering worms, is they put a wooden dowel with edges cut out of the wood. Okay. And they have another piece of wood that they rub against it to make it vibrate, and all the worms come out. Really? Okay, yeah. so the, why is he inspired by Dune and not by just, like, things that actual... I don't know. This seems to be... Why would you want to do this? And I don't know if that's because it's imitating rain or if it's just that they're attracted to the sound, but... Interesting. Okay, so it's a thing. Oh, yeah, it's a thing you do with worms. (laughs) Again, I'm not sure if that'll ever save my life, but maybe it will. I mean, if you're really hurting in the middle of the woods for something to eat... True. Like, I guess... But you got to have two pieces of wood that will cause a vibration in the ground. And also it's not winter. Sorry, I can't help you with winter there. (laughs) Just don't go to where there's winter. We saved, we just saved your life. Just to kind of summarize the end of my little segment here. So what could the death worm be? Not a real worm, that's for sure. Scientists say it's too hot for annelids to survive. And yes, I looked up an annelid. This is a fancy word for worm. Also known as invertebrate worms, well known as earthworms or leeches. It's a specific kind of worm. It could be a tartar sand boa snake, which is very likely. Mm. I think that's one of the winners on this one that scientists tend to uh, believe. That would make sense if it's venomous. Yes. I I don't which is one of the main things. There are venomous worms out there, but if it's venomous, I know there are venomous snakes out there. Yeah. I think a good majority of them are. There's a lot of venomous things out there because it's a good yeah. defense mechanism. Um, so these theories I got from a Mongolian travel guide website, and they have some really good theories. So it could be a worm lizard. The fancy word on this is amphispachnidae, which that was pronounced pretty much dead on, by the way, which is limbless with no eyes or ears and moves in a serpentine fashion. Fossil hunters did unearth some specimens close to the area that the death worms come from and inhabit. Like I said, it could be a poisonous samboa or spitting cobra, and the cobra sprays venom into its prey's eyes. And I do like this one. It could be a prehistoric outsized polychaetis, which is an aquatic worm. So yeah, these guys live in extreme environments from the coldest depths of the ocean to the extreme heat of hydrothermal vents and the Gobi Desert was once a sea. So this is a theory coming from this Mongolia travel guide website. 
Uh, and so they finally, basically just said once the sea dried up, they, they just stayed there. Yeah. yeah, we don't need water. <laughs> we're this is fine. <laughs> we're fine. We'll just live with this. And then finally, which I think is the winner, the Mongolian death worm is the guardian thought form charged with protecting Genghis Khan's grave, which still lies undiscovered. Yeah, and if you're looking for interesting tombs. Genghis Khan definitely has one of them. Basically, everybody that was in attendance of his funeral was murdered. And then everybody who murdered the people who went to his funeral committed suicide. Mm, that doesn't They're, seem suspicious yeah. at all. No, he just wanted to keep it secret. So it's probably not going to be that extravagant, seeing as how we haven't found it yet. Mm -hmm. mm, maybe one day. I would be interested if the, anybody in his government ever wrote about Mongolian death worms. They would probably know about them, or at least the tales would have been around at the time, and they definitely crossed the Gobi. I did not Or did they go around anything. the Gobi? They might have gone around the Gobi. I couldn't actually find any eyewitness accounts. I could only find people it's, saying, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, and the problem is, is that it's in Mongolia, and it's not a heavily English-speaking country, and their closest allies are either Russia or China, depending exactly. on exactly. And I was just about so to they say translate that. sometimes into those two languages, but rarely will you actually see them translated out of those two languages. Further. I did see a story saying that Russia found a body of one, and now it's in the basement of some Russian museum. Which yeah, you find I that... dislike those kinds of stories. Yeah, you see that exactly. come up a lot in English with the Smithsonian. Yeah, there's a lot of things that museums keep in their basement. Apparently. Which is the real question is, why do we even pay to go see the museum if the basement's that cool? Yeah, the basements actually sound off the hook at these museums. <laughs> oh, if every conspiracy theory were true, that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe next time I go to a museum, I can just ask the janitor. Let's put twenty to the to janitor. Yeah. And say, Let's go to the basement. Do you think he'd do it for a twenty if there's that much good stuff, or do you think he'd want more? He'd probably want more. I don't know. There might be <laughs> protocol if the basements are as good as they say. Yeah, exactly. Like, 50. and that is my Mongolian death worm. It is like the most hardcore sounding of all of the cryptids, and for one, that's that why I picked it. For one that could potentially exist and be a breeding species, not like mm -hmm. necessarily. I the biggest problem I always see with like the Loch Ness monster is it's in a tiny little environment and it's huge. Everybody only really talks about hearing one. Like there's just the Loch Ness monster. It doesn't have a partner or anything like that. So yeah. long term, it just doesn't seem like something that can exist. See, At there's least in my. The norms. There's our dinosaur ghost. I think that gives us the theory. Dinosaur ghost. There. That okay. solves the mystery. And actually from dinosaur ghost, that segues nicely into where I want to start my story <laughs> of an <laughs> animal that looks like a dog, walks like a kangaroo horse, and acts like a cat. And that is, of course, the thylacine. I'm trying to picture that. So this creature has been found in the Australia wider region for about two million years it's a very unique creature it's the one of the largest at least long-term remaining carnivorous marsupials it's basically them and the tasmanian devil that have survived at least into the 1900s is that a real real guy the tasmanian tiger the thylacine thylacine yeah it did exist for sure 
Okay. Like there is no question about this one. And I'll, I'll get into why there's no question. Like we have many fossils. Okay. From about 2 million years ago, you could find the thylacine living in the range from all the way down to Tasmania at the south end up to Papua New Guinea in the north end. It had a very wide range, did very well for itself. It's carnivorous and it is somewhat of a pack hunter. I'm going to get into that in a bit. So it looks a lot like a dog that is striped mm -hmm. from the back half all the way to the end. Its normal size ranged from about 39 to 51 inches long without the tail. With the tail all in total, yeah, it it's somewhere from about 60 inches to 77 inches long. And it weighed anywhere from at mature age. It usually is described as about 22 to 35 kilograms or 25 to 75 kil uh, pounds. So it would be considered basically a mid-sized dog. Yeah. The thylacine's range really started to drop down when humans came into the area and when dingoes were introduced to the area. It was about 4,000 years that scientists really say that the thylacine's region became limited to Tasmania and possibly the southern part of Australia as well. But for the most part, they say, at least when we're getting into the last thousand years, it's strictly in Tasmania. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting looking animal. That tail that we were just talking about, in most pictures you'll see of it, it's like a plunger stuck to the back of the animal because it's it, always the, the straight. The whole back of its, anim uh, of its body looks kind of yeah. weird. It's kind of like a foxy brown. And it has black stripes going from where the tail starts all the way to about halfway up the spine. That large tail out the back. Kind of the back does kind of remind me of a kangaroo, like you said. The reason I said so, it looks like a dog. It's got those stripes, mm -hmm. so it's a little Check. bit off. Now, it is a nocturnal hunter. So a lot of people who, when they're talking about dingoes actually taking their babies, they're, no, not their babies, surprisingly enough. Dingoes taking their territory. Other people have argued that doesn't actually make a lot of sense because they actually do have different prey that they go after. And they have different times that they hunt at because these guys are night hunters and dingoes are day hunters. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they would just eliminate them from the area. Not only are they night hunters, but they're also ambush hunters. So they kind of they wait for something to get to a certain spot and they'll kill it. Another like, like uh, cats, right? Like uh, ti don't tigers do that? Tigers will stalk. Not so, mm. it changes from animal to animal, but they it has also been called the Australian or the Tasmanian wolf. But oh, it's okay. a bad comparison because it's not really a pack hunter. It's more of an ambush hunter. Now, mm -hmm. it does have a really unique looking bite. And we'll get that to that in a minute, which does lead people to believe it's more dangerous than it is. So there are a lot of rumors that came about with this. We're going to focus mostly on Tasmania here when we're talking about this. When settlers from Europe started getting to Tasmania, they had a lot of run-ins with Tasmanian tigers. They did not like the look of this creature. It kind of terrified them. And they started to spread rumors about it. First off, the farmers that were getting there, they were farming sheep. They were finding dead sheep. So they immediately blamed it on the Tasmanian tiger. Okay. So... That's kind of rude of them. But. It is. Starting in about the 1830s, there was a bounty on any Tasmanian tiger corpse that you could bring in. 
And from 1888 to 1909, the Tasmanian government would actually pay anybody who brought in a dead one one pound. Okay, well, that's why they're extinct. And 10 shillings for pups. Usually, when the Australian government tries to do this, they fail miserably. They tried the emu war, that failed miserably. They built a dingo wall, and yeah, it did keep some of the dingoes out, but not all of them from parts of Australia. But this one actually seems to have worked. In total, about 2,184 bounties were collected over 1888 to 1909. They started putting them in zoos around this time as well, because zoos kind of started coming into prominence. They found that the species did not take well to captivity. Didn't breed well good, in there. Good for them. Oh, oh I'm mean, sorry. One more thing I wanted to talk about. Not when we're really talking for about us because yeah. now they're gone. It kind of acts like a cat. The reason I say it walks like a horse kangaroo kind of is because it has been described as standing on its two back paws. When it starts to run away, its first two steps will actually be like a hop. And then it gets into a run, but it looks like it's limp. Like it has a really awkward gait. You can kind of tell that by just looking at it. It looks like it uses that tail for support like a kangaroo does. It is a very straight tail. Which is interesting that there's an animal that's like that. And it has a huge mouth. Yeah, if you look at it, there's... So the last... There were parts of it living out there in different zoos. Now... It appears that the life cycle of a Tasmanian tiger or a thylacine is about five to seven years. At the most, it's nine years. That's the longest that they wow. were living. So it is a very short life. Is this based on it being in a zoo? Interesting. I, and it's hard to say, actually, because this would be based on like 1800 scientific method. Yeah. I don't know. And I haven't looked at other marsupials to see if that's kind of an average age to die at. So it is strictly carnivorous and like part of the reason that there were rumors going around they like it's hilarious it kind of seems like the Australian chupacabra because there are rumors that it's just sucked blood like it fed off the blood of sheep. Basically it became non-existent out in the wild around the 1930s. The last known specimen is one by the name of Benjamin, and it lived until 1936 in captivity. And if you type in Benjamin the thylacine into YouTube, hmm. you will, or sorry, Benjamin the Tasmanian tiger, because that's probably easier for a way to spell, you will find video footage of Benjamin because he lived to a point where we actually had video recording. I just did a quick search of marsupial lifespans and looks like kangaroos aren't actually very long. It said six years. Really? I guess it would depend on yeah. like the kind of kangaroo. So um, it seems like the lifespan isn't terribly long for them. Huh. That is interesting. That's uh, I did not realize that. I kind of would have at least thought they'd lived to like dog length. Yeah, that's what I thought too, but no. And it had another one that popped up. It also asked the, a popular Google searches of kangaroos fart. I didn't click on that one. If anyone was <laughs> curious, you can do your own search. Always do your own research. Yeah. Don't just believe what we're telling yeah. you. <laughs> because kangaroo farts are out there apparently. Yeah. <laughs> to be listened to. Anyhow, if you look at this video of Benjamin, at one point he yawns. A apart from everything we've just talked about, a thing that's really unique about the Tasmanian tiger is how wide it can open its mouth. And it can get reportedly open to about 80 degrees. What does it eat with that? This is what scared everybody is it had a huge mouth. It's terrifying. 46 teeth in there. They were blaming this for eating the sheep that were on the island. 
And yeah, if you type in thylacine yawning too, you'll kind of see what Benjamin's mouth was capable this of. This is so sad. Look at his cage. This is awful. Oh, it's a terrible cage. Like we are living in the nicest days for animals in zoos that we can. They shouldn't be in zoos to be honest. So yeah, but I was reading a paper from Science Daily. It's an article um, and the source is a Wiley Blackwell. And it's basically saying that the bite was actually not powerful enough to even kill sheep and it being both nocturnal and an ambush predator one wouldn't go to a farm two wouldn't attack those things because they couldn't kill them and really their biggest source of food before humans would have got there is something called and i did not know this creature existed before i uh, started doing this research it's called a patty melon it's a basically a little like a nice fruit yeah it does but it's basically a little fat rat kangaroo. Oh my god, it's adorable! Yeah. I think I saw one of those in when I was in Australia. It looks kind of like a wallaby, but no, it's called a patty melon. It's its own thing. That was its main food source. Any things that size and smaller. Tasmania does not have a lot of large creatures on it, so there'd be no reason to be able to eat sheep. So I would actually be blaming... Unless it was eating like kangaroos or yeah. something. So I would be blaming this more on hysteria of the farmers on the island or possibly dogs that had been brought. Yeah. And also an interesting thing, because this does come up when we get to sightings, humans brought foxes with them. I didn't know we did that, but apparently hunters really like to hunt foxes. So they have brought at many different points in time foxes to the island of Tasmania for sport hunting. Mm. With the most recent time this happened in the early 2000s. Yeah, we're we're a really good species to Earth. We've done a lot of good. In 1936, Benjamin died. In 1986, this species was declared extinct from the world. Now, the reason it took so long to actually declare it extinct is because so the international standard, and I, unfortunately, we didn't bring this up in the Cryptid 101 episode. A species had to have no definitive proof or confirmation of its existence for 50 years from the last sighting before you could actually declare something extinct. Oh. So that's why it didn't get declared extinct until 1986. But um, yeah, as of right now, that is the last confirmed scientifically existing thylacine is that's Benjamin. That's a very sad story. It is. Story Benjamin. From there, we're going to talk about something called the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia. And this is a group that is headed by a man named Neil Waters. And he has been pushing for thylacines to be brought back from their classification of extinct, as he believes that there is sufficient evidence out there that the thylacine does in fact live still in Tasmania in a significant oh. enough group to continue breeding. And if not Tasmania, he believes it could also be living in Southern Australia as well. Maybe we should just leave it alone so that we don't. We really should. But like we talked <laughs> about in the last episode is to be able to actually protect a species, you need to acknowledge it. Yeah. So that's a lot of what they're pushing for here. He... Part of it seems like when you're reading through the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia, Tagoa, I think I'm going to say from here on out, is he does seem to have a bit of a chip on his shoulder. But there are some interesting things that have been spotted from 1936 onwards. So first and foremost, even in Wikipedia, they have a section just called Unconfirmed Sightings. Okay. So we have 
they state uh, Department of Conservation and Land Management for Australia recorded 203 reports of sightings of the thylacine in Western Australia from 1936-1998. In 1982, a researcher with the Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Services, Hans Narding, observed what he believed to be a thylacine for three minutes during the night at a site near Arthur River in northwestern Tasmania. Mm-hmm. The sighting led to an extens
group of Australia has a good website that has a compilation of all the sightings that have been cataloged through them. Neil Waters got involved in this because he did have a sighting after living in Tasmania for a couple of years. And in total, from 1936 to today, they have collected about 7,000 sightings of this creature. I just feel really bad for them. I feel really bad for most endangered species or extinct species. Yeah. We, we have not done them right. No, we haven't. I'm sorry that we're humans are so horrible animals. Yeah. In the 1960s, there was actually a hunter who claimed to shoot a thylacine. I don't know what happened to that. That is on the Wikipedia. There's videos on this website. Yeah. He so when we're looking to bring a species back from extinction, we talked about those standards that you need and it's more or less DNA evidence of body and proof that it's capable of continuing on the species. Yeah. Neil Waters, if he doesn't have that, his group is pretty damn close. In 1966, they found a corpse of a Tasmanian tiger in a cave. This is what it looked like in 1966. How old do you think that corpse is? Not that old. 19 what? It was found in a cave in 1966. It is on the Nuller... Nalarbor not that old of Western Australia in 1966. So they yeah, said this is 4,000 years old. There's still fur. Yeah, it is half rotten. The cave's main chamber registered a temperature of 19 degrees Celsius and had a relative humidity of 67 degrees. And there were still odors emanating from the dead animals in the cave. So they had found several dead bodies. This is what the area looked like. It looks like things are rotting. Yeah, it does. But yeah, they did an analysis, a carbon-14 dating for an analysis. They said it came somewhere between 4,600 and 4,700 years old. On the Thylacine Awareness Group website, they talk about this being anywhere from 95 years old to 3,500 years old. <laughs> At least that's what the carbon dating said. But On this, they carbon dated this thing that you're showing Yeah, me they right carbon now. dated the corpse. Oh. But there is somebody who had some pushback. There was a scientist by the name of Douglas who in 1986 was looking at this. And he said that the carcass actually looks like it's pretty recent. In fact, it probably only would have lasted a couple of months at the time of its discovery. He's yeah, I don't know how certain, it caved. Yeah, fairly certain. What happened here is, this is the exact quote. The carcass in its present condition could not exist for more than 4,000 years in a cave containing flesh-eating beetles and subject to high humidity and flooding. Mm -hmm. And he believes what happened is the carbon-14 got a false positive due to floodwaters at the time. Because they would bring in different materials that maybe that's what in fact got tested. Yeah, if there's bugs and insects in the cave, I wouldn't imagine it would be looking like this. Yeah. Yeah, some caves, they are prime locations for the mummification to occur. This is 19 degrees Celsius. That's pretty warm and 67% humidity. These are not, these are rotting conditions right there. And the fact yeah. that people were describing emanating foul smells just lets you know that decomposition is occurring, at yeah. least in my mind. Yeah. So that's kind of the first thing here. In 1977, a man by the name of Kevin Cameron took this photo here. Okay. We're going to post all of this stuff to our to all our social media, so keep a lookout for them. What you're looking at here, at least this is what they described it as, as this is the butt of a thylacine here. You can see the tail protruding straight back. 
and you can see some prominent stripes all the way down the back. Now, unfortunately, it's 1977's uh, level of photography, so it is definitely blurry, but it seems fairly clearly in my mind, like not many things in that area have that prominently straight back tail like that and the stripes on the back. You can't see it that well. No, that's the problem with the whole 1977 thing. Oh, I see what you're seeing. This right here. Yeah. With the tail shooting straight back. Yeah. And he's got stripes right there. Mm -hmm. And also, if you go on the Thylacine Awareness website, they do have a lot of different pictures. And they actually have it standing as it would in its kangaroo posture. <laughs> it looks really creepy. <laughs> yeah, it does. And you can tell that by looking at it on I, all fours that that's what it would do. Dare I say it would be called a danger -roo. Yeah, that definitely not that a regular kangaroo wouldn't be called yeah. dangerous, but that looks like an angry little one. Yeah. Like I was saying, Neil Waters has collected many different paw prints throughout the ages of this thing. They have a very distinct gait and different paws. So these do definitely lead people to believe that um, he has also collected feces samples. I was wondering why I was looking at that. Yeah, that's why you're looking at poop. He has had this sent off to be studied. He had collected it in Tasmania in April of 2017. He got it sent off to be studied. The labs believed that the feces most likely came from a creature known as a numbat. Now, the piece of feces being studied here is about six inches long and about one inch in diameter. A numbat is basically a marsupial squirrel. At longest, it's 18 inches long. So very unlikely that it came from that creature. Also, which makes it very unlikely, is the numbat is not native to Tasmania. It is native only to Australia. Interesting. Also very interesting is the fact that the numbat is the closest living relative to the Tasmanian tiger, sharing about 94% of its DNA with it. Oh, it, it's so tiny, and it does kind of look like it. It also kind of looks like a small anteater. Yeah, it's got the stripes. The numbat actually does give some weight to it being thylacine if you can't identify some of the DNA. If you just feel that you've got it most of the way, and that might be a little bit of my ignorance not knowing how DNA studies would work, but it doesn't look like this creature could poop out something six inches long. <laughs> Neil Waters, he did an interview about this stuff. He specifically, the quote is, so first off, he described it as uh, it was a Bondi cigar poo and is in like describing the size of it as roughly cigar sized. Yeah. And he said, if it came out of a numbat, it would have turned the poor little bugger inside out. You can imagine that in the Australian accent if you would like. He definitely has one. They have found a body of it. Carbon dating that has been the problem with that one. They definitely have found something that resembles the feces it should leave. They have paw prints, paw tracks. There are many different photos out there. We just talked about that one. There is fairly convincing video evidence as well. This is a video taken in 2017 by a man by the name of Paul Day. I really hope that's not a fake name because it says his name is Paul G. Day, which in my mind is Paul Gaday. Yeah, like Australia. Yeah, so. but this Gaday. is just a creature running across a field that... Oh, I just looked at that one. Yeah. It bears the gait that we've been talking about of this creature. It looks like this creature is limping across the field. Yeah. And it's got that tail straight back. 
It does look like it's running weird. Yeah, it looks like it's got a hurt back leg. Yeah. And just in February 2021, Neil Waters posted a video that he believes is his best evidence to date. And he's ecstatic saying that we found it. This is the best evidence we could possibly ask for. I will ask you all to go look. The Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia does have its own YouTube page. And if you are interested in looking further into this, they have an hour and 20 minute in-depth documentary about the creature as well. Basically all the evidence that they've had for it and interviewing a lot of the indigenous population of Tasmania and Australia about their beliefs and cultural reveration of the creature. But yeah, this is a creature that they've found a corpse of, that they have found something that would likely be its feces, paw prints, video and photo evidence of. Now, still not considered found, but I would say it is at least going to get a very hard look, as we talked about in our previous episodes about this, by the scientific community to be categorized at least as extremely endangered and no longer extinct, because there is just a lot of evidence out there. Maybe we'll be doing an update saying that it's now... No I really hope we can again. do an update on this, because its story is so sad, and I just want this creature to be living. And Yeah, that would be really cool yeah, for it so, to be... Yeah, just to come back from to show a little bit of my bias. I definitely want this thing to be real. I try to be as objective as possible when I'm looking at it. I want it to be real, though. I feel it is important. Everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah, it's a really cool creature. Let's hope that we can once again see it someday. And if it's not through this, there are actually a lot of proposals to reintroduce it through cloning more or less into oh. the wilds of Tasmania. What could go wrong? Yeah, those are our two creatures today. Now, less charismatic, but a little more in the normal. That will conclude as of at least this point in time, our dive and discussions of cryptids. Don't worry, though. Don't get too upset. We will talk about them again in the future. I, I don't think it'll be that long either. Yeah, maybe... Maybe, Maybe uh, it, yeah, kidding. but it's our last episode, so. Yeah, it's too bad. Why doesn't everybody join us next week? Our next topic is just a little bit more fun. It's a little bit more fun in the sense that these aren't probably real things in any way. <laughs> We're going to look at mythical islands, historical references to them, and different ones that you've probably never heard of outside of Atlantis. So stay tuned. We're probably going to say hi to Brazil, which... If you don't know what that means, stay tuned and we can talk about it in the next episode. I guess I'll find the out. The more you know. I'll Thank find out next episode. Thank you for tuning in and we'll talk to you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. Uh, we are a new podcast and we would very much so appreciate if you could like, subscribe, share and if possible provide a five-star review or some sort of feedback if you feel like there's anything we could be doing better but five-star review is the best thing you can do for us as it does help unfortunately in the world of algorithms yes please and thank you and you can follow us on social media at journey to the fringe we don't have all of them, so try searching it instagram we're on facebook right now we have a subreddit and if there's anything you want to hear in the future, feedback, anything, you can email us at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. If there's something we're missing, 
uh, that you'd like to see us on, please let us know. We only know what we know. So we're only and in so many places. Also, if you feel that we have gotten anything wrong, please let us know there as well, as we would really like to have the best information possible. We are mm-hmm. only as good as our research. And if you can provide anything further, it's a real help. Or if you want to share anything, we yes. will definitely, we're open to shares. So yes, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.